Hello, welcome to this BMJ podcast about well-being. In this episode, we'll be thinking about what organisations have learned from the first wave of COVID-19 and how can they can look after their staff this winter. I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor at the BMJ with an interest in well-being. And I'm Ketch Hatfield, a GP by training with an interest in quality and safety in healthcare. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's campaign on well-being, which is hugely important for healthcare professionals all the time, but especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. The current situation for medics at the front line has been deteriorating as COVID cases rise and organisations need to refocus on managing these patients and managing their staff and teams. Today, we're going to be speaking to an organisational psychologist who is an expert at how organisations engage and support staff. This is a, a really interesting topic, I think, Kat, because at the beginning and sort of, as I see it, middle of the first wave of the pandemic, we saw organisations, I think, doing quite positive things to support their staff wellbeing. You know, we've talked about it quite a lot before on this podcast, but providing hot food and spaces for people to rest and, um, you know, other facilities. And maybe those have been lost slightly as the kind of first wave dipped, I suppose, the curve in my mind. But now we're going back into potentially a second wave and those things might not be available I wonder if organisations are going to fare so well. Yeah, absolutely. There was a kind of real throw everything at it kind of attitude, wasn't there? You know, right at the beginning, there's unlimited funding and unlimited sort of energy. So really, like, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how we're going to cope with it. Let's just do whatever we can. Um, But it feels like there's more caution this time. There's perhaps a bit more kind of harsh economic reality um, and that people are exhausted not just kind of frontline staff, but, you know, everyone across society is exhausted and running out of energy to pour into this. And I expect probably organisational leads and, you know, top level boards are as well. Um, And so how can we just kind of retain this focus on giving people the support they need? And I suppose recognising that they need it now more than ever um, and that the long haul is is where the huge challenge is going to lie um, because, as you said, Abby, think of the kind of curves, you know, we are kissing the second wave, but we don't know how many waves there are going to be. So I think we really need to think how we can not just make these short term changes, but really embed a, a complete cultural shift, um, which says, you know, what we really need is to look after people so they can provide great care and not overburden them with lots of arduous um, micromanagement around the care that they provide. So be interesting to hear about how we might do that. Yes, my name is Michael West. I'm Senior Visiting Fellow at the King's Fund and Professor of Organisational Psychology at Lancaster University. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast. Before we kick off with um, some questions, I just wondered if you could paint a picture for us of what staff wellbeing looks like in the NHS, either at the moment or perhaps pre-COVID when there might be better um, research and data. So back in January this year, staff stress levels in the NHS were almost certainly at the highest levels they had ever been. We know from previous research that something like 50% more staff in the NHS report debilitating levels of work stress. 
compared with the general working population as a whole. That, that's um, on the basis of fairly careful studies using standardised scales. We, we know also that around 41% of staff in the NHS in the staff survey in 2019 reported that they'd been unwell as a result of work stress in the previous year. That's the highest level that we've seen since that particular question was incorporated into the staff survey back in the uh, late aughties, I think it was around 2008-2009. Those average figures, of course, hide considerable variation. Uh, nurses, about 44% report being unwell as a result of work stress in the previous year. Midw midwives particularly under stress, over 51%. Um, and we also have data from the GMC National Training Survey, which uses a standardised scale uh, called the Copenhagen Burnout Inventory, and that shows that around 48-49% of doctors in training have moderate or high levels of burnout, and uh, uh, about 44% of trainers. So these are really alarming figures because we know that staff stress predicts cardiovascular disorders, cardiovascular disease, addictions, diabetes, cancers, depression, and so on. And it also plays out in terms of um, sickness absence and levels of um, intention to quit. So last year, we know that around 39% of GPs were saying that they intended to quit direct patient-facing uh, contact within the next um three years and we already have a huge shortage of GPs. And uh, another alarming figure, one in four of nurses and health visitors who join the NHS leave within the first three years of joining. And you, you know, you'll be aware of the levels of staff vacancies and uh, the pressure that that puts upon um, existing staff. And then the pandemic struck. And Michael, what do you think and I know it's hard to say, but what do you think the effect of the pandemic will be on staff levels of stress and burnout? I think we can be clear that it will have a very big impact. Um, there have been a number of studies using different methodologies and differing sample sizes and different sample characteristics. Some have focused specifically on ICU staff, others on um, staff more generally but all paint a picture of staff under huge pressure. And, and I guess what's, you know, we see higher levels of anxiety and depression, um, but particularly there is some indication of a, a significant increase in symptoms uh, of post-traumatic stress disorder. It's kind of early to be making statements about PTSD um, because that's obviously a long-term condition, but the early symptoms are indicative, and not surprisingly so, because there, you know, we had a kind of cocktail, I suppose, of pressures on staff, increases in workload, um, often people having to shift the work that they were doing and shift teams, uh, plus all of the associated fear that I think we all felt, particularly early in the um, in the pandemic. And also the concerns, particularly for staff, of contracting the virus themselves, of infecting their families, of having to isolate, of trying to manage the demands, that, you know, the huge increase in demands in home life 
with the demands of work life. So particularly for for women, um, having to take more of the responsibility for childcare because schools were closed and so on. And uh, that's played out in terms of the, the some of the pattern of the contacts that have been made um, on the NHS People Plan website, where there are all the resources to support staff. Um, there have been somewhere in the region of half a million contacts by staff for the various services offered to support staff during COVID um, via via that website as an indication of the need people have um, have had for support. So that's a rather long, um, somewhat rambling answer, but we can be clear, I think, that there will be increases in in stress. And, and of course, a substantial portion proportion of people will cope with that and come out the other side of this, maybe strengthened, maybe wiser, but that there will be a percentage who will be um, hurt and damaged in this process. And I think particularly because of the, I suppose, the impact of the second surge that we're currently experiencing. I've heard a kind of heart-rending um, creed occur from many staff who just say, I can't do this again. And I just can't do this again. And so, you know, that will have, a, I think, a, a considerable impact and the uncertainty of when we're going to have a sense of... Um, of being on a on a continued downward slope rather than facing constant uncertainty and changes in in demand. So, you know, it is a difficult time, and and, and I think I've, what I've said so far maybe you know may feel very depressing, but it is I think a it, it's a, it's a it's really important that what we take from that is the need for all of us who have any influence to make sure that we're providing increased support for staff in any way that we can, whether it's national bodies doing what they're doing to support staff or leaders at every level within our organisations doing what they can to support staff. Um, Because the only way we can continue to provide high quality, compassionate care for staff is if we, for for patients during all all of this, is if we provide increased, continually improving and high quality, compassionate support for staff. And we talked to you back in March, Michael, about organisations needing to provide that support and their compassionate leadership during COVID. Could you give us any examples of how organisations have fared so far? I mean, perhaps where it's been done very well, perhaps areas where it's not been done so well. It's I think it's um, easier to pick out the beacons. Um, you know, there there is uh, clearly there's been quite a lot of variation in how staff have been supported. There are light spots and dark spots. Um, and even within the dark spots, there are examples of good practice. So, um, you know, Cum Taf in Wales has been providing extra um, support for staff and some of its team leaders in ICU have been making sure that there are snacks and uh, in the in the restrooms on at night. Some organisations have provided free parking at night. Others have made sure that they're providing hot, nutritious food, free 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 food. Um, there's been, I think, 
an intensification of team meetings in some places. So teams being brought together much more. Um, some better use has been made of remote team working as well to to enable people to check in on each other. Some organisations have instituted buddying arrangements where members of staff are buddied up with each other um, so that they can each check in on each other and say, you know, how are you doing? Um, is there anything I can do to help? What's your workload like? So it, there has been, I think, enormous innovation in terms of supporting staff at scale and at pace. Um, it has been variable um, and it mirrors, in a sense, the enormous uh, innovation that's taken place as well in the provision of care for people in the community and for patients with COVID. And one of the things we've talked about before is that in some ways it was as if COVID waved a magic wand and suddenly all these things that staff had been asking for and needed, like spaces to rest or spaces to just connect and chat or food, as you've mentioned, you know, suddenly appeared overnight. But how much do you think these changes are going to be sustained even in those organisations, let alone spread to other organisations? And, and what do we need to do to help make that the case? I, I think they have to be sustained. We um, The people plan is about how we sustain those changes, about how we give people more voice and influence, how we ensure that they're working in just and fair cultures, places like Mersey Care, who have introduced restorative culture, Pennine Care is doing the same, how we give people more control over shifts and um, rotors, Places like Betsy Cadwallader introducing e-rostering that gives staff much more influence and control. And, and how we build more effective team working so that people are part of, that they're, they're members of at least one stable home team, because we know that's so protective. And how we develop compassionate leadership across the system. And I think a particular issue that we have to address, and I, and I worry constantly that we're in danger of not addressing it, is the issue of chronic excessive workload. Mm -hmm. That that is the number one predictor of staff stress. It's the number one uh, reason that staff give for intending to quit. And we know it's highly related to patient dis dissatisfaction, to error rates, you know, and, and it's... It's because it's the number one cause of staff stress. It's also a significant issue in medical errors. We know that doctors who report high levels of workload and, and stress within the next three months are between 45 and 63 percent more likely to make a major medical error. So we have to address chronic excessive workload. And there, there people do talk about it there is a beginning i think of a recognition that it is it is a key problem and we are beginning to get examples of places that are addressing chronic excessive workload like east london foundation trust which has reduced 85% of clinical audit activities places that are using new technologies more effectively um, the development of multi-professional team working with new roles that i've mentioned already so it's essential, I think, that um, those examples of good practice spread. And in the, in the end, I think it's the only way in which the people plan will be implemented effectively if we, if we offer examples of good practice, not as, not, as a, not as the model that we must transplant, but as a template with which to work to, um, 
uh, and adapt to, to make sure that we're addressing issues like chronic excessive workload. It's really nice, Michael, to hear you mention some positive examples from, you know, individual trusts mm. and, and GP practices. I just wonder whether, you know, prior to the pandemic, it felt like staff wellbeing had finally got to the top of the agenda for lots of national organisations. You know, you did some work with the GMC and others seem to be taking it seriously. And I wonder whether the pandemic with its other pressures will, will push it back down to the bottom of the agenda or whether it will remain there and people will continue to see it as being so important it was certainly i think at the top of the agenda back in january because of the level of staff vacancies across the nhs because of the very high levels of intention to quit and particularly in general practice but not exclusively in in general practice and i think that there was you know whatever your um, beliefs or ideological position, there was a recognition that the NHS was at a crisis point in terms of staffing, um, given the very high levels of turnover and intention to quit. And so I think there was a recognition at national policy level that change had to had to occur. And that was some of the um, impetus for the people plan that was um, produced within England and there are similar initiatives in the rest of the the UK. It has been similar focus on providing compassionate uh, leadership across the system in Northern Ireland, in Scotland, and Wales has just embarked on a ten year strategy to develop compassionate leadership across the system. Um, I think that the release of the People Plan was delayed for uh, a variety of reasons. But if anything, I think the pandemic has increased the the, uh, the sense that we need to transform the cultures of health and care organisations to ensure that we can continue to deliver high quality care. Translating the people plan into practice is going to be um, a key challenge. I think the people plan has uh, is just full of exactly the kind of initiatives we need but it, it it's it's not enough to have a policy document we had the policy document in i think it was 2017 developing people improving care and that never seemed to be implemented so um the people plan must not have the same fate and uh, so there's also about translating the content of the people plan into practice i think we also need a detailed workforce planning process to let us you know to have it give us a clear picture of the workforce we'll need not just now but more importantly across the next decade what are going to be the challenges in our health and care system how are we uh, redesigning our health and care system how will the community be more involved in co-designing and um, taking co-ownership of the health and care system and what implications does that have for the kind of workforce we'll need in the future um, how are we developing new roles in primary care, in secondary care? Um, you know, we've seen the development of healthcare assistants, um, midwifery assistants. We've seen the greater use in some primary care practices of physiotherapists and psychiatric nurses. nurses. Um, and, you know, we, we need to, I suppose, think about how we're going to develop new roles in the future. Um, in order that we can meet the demands that are placed upon the service. So 
I think the people plan is vital. There's a, there's a huge amount of effort needed to get from having that people plan into putting it into practice so that we transform the cultures of healthcare organisations. And, you know, that's without men men mentioning the huge elephant in the room, which is social care and what support is being given to the social care sector with 18,000 different organisations um, providing social care and the need to integrate social care and primary care and secondary care across the system. So those are huge challenges that lie ahead. But unless we can retain the staff that we have and attract new staff, then uh, it's all theoretical. Do you think we have the senior leadership that we need to make that happen? I'm just thinking that when people talk about culture of organisations, they often talk about it coming from the very top, you know, not just the trust, but maybe NHS England or wherever the body is above them. Do we have, do you think we have that leadership in place to be able to make these changes? I think that I, I certainly meet many enlightened, well-intentioned, passionate people at senior level. They're all across the NHS. I mean, I, it, it, for me, one of the privileges of working in this sector is the amazing people I meet at every level of our health and care system. I think if I have a, a strong criticism, it's that, that the national bodies are so busy looking at the cultures and processes of the organisations across the system that they don't take the time to look at their own cultures and their own processes. And I, I you know, what I come across in national organisations is cultures that do need to be examined. There, do, there does need to be a discovery process in these national organisations. What sort of culture do we have? What are our employees experiencing? What are working relationships like? How then do we design leadership development and leadership processes that deliver the culture that we need? Because if these organisations are not modelling compassionate, supportive cultures, uh, and they're producing very high levels of stress and conflict within their organisations, then they're not going to be fit for purpose in supporting the wider system. So I think the cultures of those national organisations must be compassionate cultures. They must be compassionate institutions that pay attention to the organisations and uh, the NHS across the country that seek to understand the challenges that those organisations face, that empathise with them, that have a caring emotional response to them and then seek to help them. I think we've got much too strong an emphasis on control and direction uh, and, and not enough on support and understanding and enabling. And we need to get that consistency of cultures at the highest levels in the Department of Health, in NHS England and improvement um, in, in the other national bodies. And you've mentioned primary care a couple of times and as well as obviously social care, which is a huge part of community care. But it, it's sometimes a bit clearer how this sort of compassionate leadership can play out in secondary care and these big organisations and trusts. But what does it mean for community care where there's such distributed leadership? How can mm. that be realised? In some ways, I think the... Um, the advantage of social care and community care is that these are smaller organisations. And in a way, it's e there are two advantages of that. One is that because they're smaller, 
you know, often with a maximum of 20, 30, 40 staff, that there is more of a sense of belonging and more of a sense of support than sometimes people get in these much bigger organisations with 10, 12, 14,000 staff, where you can feel a little disconnected um, from the wider organisation. Um, and second, it's much easier, I think, to bring about culture, culture change in small organisations like that. And, and I think that the, the learning we have about how to develop compassionate leadership, how to develop team working, is, is absolutely as applicable in those social care, community care contexts. And, and in a way we can achieve, I think, quicker and more uh, impactful, if you like, more powerful results by implementing those changes. But I think that what we need to do nationally is to provide that support for developing compassionate leadership and team working in these social care, community care organisations. And at the minute, I don't see that happening. There are uh, th there are some great organisations like Skills for Care, which is doing um, good work across the sector, but it needs to be better supported and more widespread. It really interests me, Michael. You see this, the people plan as a kind of positive um, impetus for change, because I have to be honest, when I read it, I didn't think there was much in it. And it, and it, I thought when you said afterwards that we also need a, a workforce plan, I think I was expecting the people plan to be a more sort of workforce plan type document, and it didn't seem to be. But it sounds like from your perspective, you do think there's enough sort of good stuff in there to make positive change. Um, the 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 intentions are really good. It's about giving people voice and influence. It's about giving people control over the balance between their work and home lives. It's about team working. It's about compassionate leadership. Without a workforce plan, without a workforce plan, it's like a car without an engine. <laughs> because mm. with the huge shortages we have of staff, with the high levels of intention to quit, with the very high levels of sickness absence, twice what they are in the private sector, and unless we have a plan for how we ha can have the, the right workforce numbers that we need, it's not going to be possible to deliver all of those other good things that I think we, we do have to deliver. Um, so, so it, what it proposes, I think, is uh, is absolutely right. And, and I, you know, just like our responses to climate change, I am I am I am not optimistic, but I'm deeply hopeful. And in relation to the people plan, without a workforce plan, I'm certainly not optimistic, but I'm deeply hopeful that with the emphasis of policy leads and um, and politicians on the importance of the people plan and workforce plan, we will get there. So the Health and Social Care Committee is currently meeting and addressing issues of burnout. The Public Accounts Committee has addressed the issue of workforce shortages. The Department of Health has to address this issue because it's the only way we can continue to deliver high quality, compassionate care within within the country. So um, I, I would say I'm well aware of the deficiencies of the um, people plan, the, the big gap, the yawning gap, which is a workforce plan. 
but the intent the intent of the content of it i think is is important and right do you think that nhs staff will cope with a second wave i do think nhs staff will cope with the second wave there will of course be casualties um it's been a tragic year so, so many nhs staff have lost their lives so many have been ill so many have suffered um with the demands of the job and they have suffered mental health problems but what we've seen is you know the most inspiring stories and heartwarming examples of what staff have done for people in the community but also what staff have done for each other the care that they've shown each other from you know very small acts like cups of tea to supporting each other outside work i mean it's just been um amazing and extraordinary and nhs staff you know i'm because of the the culture of um of compassion and service will will continue to respond to all of this but what i feel absolutely passionate about and um determined to keep giving voice to is we cannot take that for granted the evidence is already clear we cannot take that for granted people are human beings they're soft then they're vulnerable chronic stress kills people it kills people you know through a variety of means and it also undermines their ability to deliver high quality care so the number one responsibility of all leaders and all people influencing our health services is to increase the support for staff is to increase the extent to which they're listening to staff increase their understanding of the of the the multiple challenges that staff are facing and to have the courage to empathize with staff to care for them to put themselves in their shoes so they understand what this feels like and that then gives them the motivation i hope to do the fourth thing that's really important in compassion which is to help staff by removing the obstacles which get in the way of them delivering um delivering care doing their jobs in the way they want to do it and, and and ensuring they have the resources staff the equipment the ppe equipment the technology and the training uh so that um it enables them to deliver the high quality care that that they want to deliver and that i think is the absolute number number one priority for all our leaders the danger is that what leaders do in a crisis is they become more task focused and less people focused and that's exactly the wrong strategy in this situation well cat although some of that was slightly depressing it was really nice to hear from michael some examples of some really good practice that's been going on during the pandemic both from secondary and primary care which was nice to hear a view from both um and also a hopeful note from him that, that most staff will cope with the second wave. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, there is there are a lot of positives to take from this. I think we have seen that change can happen massively and very quickly. And so if we know cultures need to change and we need to focus on staff wellbeing, we've seen these, these big organisations and these small organisations pivoting incredibly quickly to redesign services and refocus their energies and efforts. So there's no reason to think that that can't happen to refocus energy and efforts and to 
staff well-being as well um, and it's just really making sure as Michael was saying that that is given sufficient priority and focus and that everybody really clearly understands at the highest level the evidence and the drive to do that um, you know not just on a compassionate level for staff and for people um, but in terms of providing safe care um, and what we need to do to to make sure that we are delivering a, a world-class health service I suppose on another positive note, just reflecting on hearing what friends and colleagues have, have told me, you know, um, about flexibility in their, their work rotors that haven't been there before, um, a sort of real consensus among teams about making sure that people have what they need, members of the team that are shielding are protected from frontline duties, you know, members of the team that have caring responsibilities, you know, just this real sense of perhaps not a kind of one size fits all approach to everybody's roles but a sense that what needs to happen is to create a, a cohesive coherent team that works together to deliver a service um, which for me is really positive um, and it's heartening to hear of organizations that are listening to staff and taking that on and making those changes absolutely i think that's a really nice positive place to end the podcast so thank you very much to our guest professor michael west for coming on and joining us and you can check us out on social media we're at bmj underscore latest on twitter or you can join the bmj wellbeing group on facebook we'd really like to hear your ideas for what you'd like us to cover in future episodes until next time it's goodbye from us bye, bye.